You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll hear about antibiotic use in agriculture. Does it pose a significant threat to human health? These multi-drug resistant MRSA strains were prevalent in the workers in these industrial livestock operations, but not so in the non-industrial operations. But before that, a new investigation from the BMJ has looked at changes in rationing patterns in the new NHS. Annabelle Ferriman, our news editor, talks to the journalist who's done the digging. Well, I'm in the studio today with Gareth Iacobucci, who joined the BMJ last year and who's carried out a very big investigation for us about the activities of the new clinical commissioning groups who took up their role in the NHS on April the 1st this year. Now, Gareth, can you tell us what was the starting point for this investigation? Sure. So clinical commissioning groups are the the holders of the purse strings for quite a large proportion of the the NHS budget um, and that includes the budget for purchasing care from hospitals. We wanted to analyse their commissioning policies, specifically looking at whether they were introducing new restrictions on what are often termed as procedures of limited clinical priority, non-essential treatments, so treatments that are nice to have and do in a number of cases show benefit but they're not seen as life-saving. We knew that these have sometimes been subject to restrictions or rationing in the past under primary care trusts, but what we wanted to see was whether CCGs were doing things differently. Great. And how did you go about it? Basically, I asked for information from each CCG in England. There are 211, and 195 of them supplied us with information. First of all, some CCGs have tighten the thresholds for access to surgery and other treatments. Others have introduced what they call referral gateways, which are designed really to restrict the number of patients being sent to hospital and kind of manage them uh, in that way. We also found that the, the vast majority are also dragging their feet in implementing new NICE guidelines, which are specifically designed to widen access to IVF and so far we found that only four CCGs in the country have amended their policies since this guidance was was produced. Great. So can you tell me a bit more about the first category you mentioned, which is changing thresholds for treatment and restricting some referrals? Sure. So some examples would include treatment for hernias, cataracts, musculoskeletal conditions like trigger finger, for example. Um, In one area, what we found that a CCG had tightened criteria for surgery for trigger finger, so now it will only be offered if it's severely impacting on a patient's daily living, and that's the case with a few other categories of treatment too, that they're sort of introducing the, these thresholds really that patients have to reach if they're to qualify for surgery, which in the past would have been more easily accessible on the NHS. Yes, I think you um, said in your article that both hernias and cataracts sort of come into that category, that there were some quite tight restrictions on which ones qualified for surgery and which ones didn't. Is that right? Yes, that's correct, yeah. yes. Now, can you tell us about these new um, referral gateways? What do they consist of? Okay, so usually they're sort of externally run systems, which the idea is that when a GP in their surgery makes a referral, before it, the patient goes straight to hospital, the referral is examined by this sort of, they call them gateways, 
You may have some that are sent back to the GP. You may have some that are sent through to hospitals. But basically, the, the idea is that they're trying to screen what they would term as sort of inappropriate referrals. Mm. But on, on one hand, they're sort of clinically driven, but they're also sort of ways of saving money as well. Can you tell me, I mean, I think you looked at one particular um, case where they had returned, was it about... 1% of referrals, or was it higher than that? Um, so it was 4%. 4% yeah, sorry. 4% of about 12,500, I think, um, referrals. But, but they sort of were able to break it down. And the 1% figure was actually, that was the proportion that they said were due to sort of what they call inappropriate referrals right. from GPs. Now, they've been dragging their feet, you said, about implementing NICE guidelines on, um, I think it was on IVF, you said. Yes. Um how did NICE change its guidelines on IVF? These were designed just for background to widen access. So actually, the the age was extended from 40 to 42. And the guidelines also recommended that IVF be offered to single women and same-sex couples. But what we found was that only four in the country have actually adopted their guidelines to reflect this. Uh, I mean, a number of others said they were currently reviewing them. So mm. it's possible they may make changes in the future but they certainly haven't yet. Now, on this question of restricting referrals for various um, surgical procedures, um, I think you got a comment from the Royal College of Surgeons about this, didn't you? Yes, that's right, yes. Um, what did they say? Well, they were very concerned about certain restrictions, and particularly they felt that in some cases the restrictions were being put in place without adequate input from surgeons on the benefits of this treatment. And in in some cases, although a treatment or a procedure might be low priority, if you like. Um, it might prevent complications for that patient in the future. And they, they believe sort of that, that it should be looked at far more on a kind of individual basis rather than there being, I guess, arbitrary restrictions. Or blanket in place. restrictions, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, now, are there any conditions that were considered sort of untouchable that, I mean, that CCGs refuse to even look at or to consider? I mean, are there anything that you could say with core services that just have not been uh, affected by any of these changes? Well no not really and I think the problem at the moment is that there is no national list of core NHS services available which leaves it up to local commissioners to decide on which services to fund. Now the BMA has actually called for a discussion about developing such a list with the aim of avoiding postcode lotteries on sort of access to care and it believes that this onus should not fall on doctors at a local level. Essentially, they believe that doctors are being forced to be, if you like, the agents of rationing and that this actually is sort of jeopardising their primary role to be advocates for their patients. So, so they want some sort of national guidance and intervention on this. Really. Right. And I gather, I mean, that has, has led to tensions. And I gather there was a resignation by someone from one CCG who did feel that he was being put in this invidious, impossible position where he was meant to be both the patient's advocate and the sort of guardian of the public purse strings. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. So this was a doctor in, um, in Sussex who... Basically, he, he'd held a sort of quite senior position on the CCG and he was a clinical director. He felt very strongly that doctors were, were really risking their reputations, if you like, by taking on this role of rationing care uh, yeah. effectively. And, it, and he felt that he had to step down from this senior role. And it, he also warned that things may get worse in terms of financial situation. Uh, he, he actually believes that some CCGs could start running out of money soon and 
the blame will fall on the doctors. Yes, um, and he yes. was very concerned about that. I thought he had a very good phrase when he said something like, um, under legal restrictions, uh, a CCG can run out of services, but it can't run out of money. It has to balance the budget at the end of the year. So finally, do you think that in the light of the BMA's request for a debate on core services and doctors worry about postcode rationing, do you think the government is likely to step in and, and say these are core services and must not be touched at any stage? Well, currently, it doesn't look like there is much appetite from the government to intervene. Now, NHS England said to us in a statement that it has not offered any guidance to CCGs on on how they should introduce new commissioning policies, and, and they are very much of the view that it is CCGs that should be responsible for explaining the reasons for their mm. decisions. Now, it did say that it may intervene if it believes a CCG is failing or is at risk of failing to meet its statutory duties. They say that this may include failing to follow what they call a proper process in reaching decisions on, say, the funding of a particular treatment or drug. But that leaves lots of ambiguity, I suppose, and it doesn't seem like the direction that they want to choose is one where they're intervening nationally. They they very much seem to want to leave it to be determined locally. Yes. No, they've obviously kicked the responsibilities over to the CCGs and they're certainly not at this stage, I suppose, going to take it back, at least for the moment. But (laughs) depending on presumably patient responses to the whole thing, it it might change. Well, that's very, very interesting. And um, I gather there's a second part. Yes, that's right. Next week, um, we're looking at self-funding, which is the, the basically patients paying for treatment in NHS hospitals. So we're linking it with this feature in the sense that we're looking at whether patients are now exploring other options if they can't access treatments on the NHS, so whether they're they're more willing to pay for certain services um, and whether hospitals are therefore adjusting what they offer in response to this demand. Yes, fascinating. I think we can all look forward to reading that next week and um, I'm sure you'll get a lot of people reading your investigation this week as well. Thanks very much, Gareth. Thank you. And that article is available online now. And there's a chance for you to tell us how your practice has been affected by these changes, so the links are on the podcast page. Now, a head-to-head in the BMJ this week asks, does adding routine antibiotics to animal feed pose a serious risk to human health? The two sides of that are are available online, um, and the authors of those arguments join me on the phone now. First of all, I have David Wallinger, who's a physician and member of the steering committee of Keep Antibiotics Working, which is a campaign to end antibiotic overuse in agriculture. Hello, David. Hello. Uh, The other person arguing no is David Birch, who's from Octagon Services Limited, which is a consultancy looking at antibiotic use in agriculture. Hello, David. Hello there. Okay, gentlemen, a little background for a start. Antibiotics have been used in intensive farming for decades, but concerns of resistance means that routine use of antibiotics is being examined, and in the EU, attempts to limit that use means that animals are no longer given antibiotics at sub-therapeutic levels in their food to promote growth. Um, But that practice continues elsewhere around the world. What's still happening here is that animals are given antibiotics prophylactically in food to prevent infection when they go into a new farm, for example, as well as for treatment of uh, gross disease. So, David Wallinger, we'll start with you. 
What's your main concern here? What do you want to happen? Well, uh, the devil's kind of in the details. Obviously, the use differs both from farm to farm and from country to country. But no matter how you dice it, much of the use isn't really necessary use. And by that, I mean that the way that we raise animals uh, for meat or for food has changed quite dramatically over the decades. And, and along with that, the routine use of feed antibiotics has become part oftentimes of that evolution of how we uh, raise animals. So the question on the table now, and the one that has been very relevant in Denmark and more recently in the Netherlands and, and to a lesser extent in the U.S., is are we going to change how we raise the animals so that the use of antibiotics in the feed becomes less routine and less substantial rather than uh, what it has been in the past. Um, David Birch, now, obviously, with intensive farming, and particularly perhaps pig farming where animals are kept in close quarters, that has led to conditions where perhaps prophylactic use is necessary. Do you agree with, uh, with David Wollongo there about animal husbandry, actually? Uh, been past the problem. Well, yes, I, I do. I mean, <laughs> um, if you like, uh, let me make two, two clarifications. In the U.S., most of the antibiotics in feed are, um, you know, prescription-free. I think that's the first thing. So the, the, there is controls, and there's controls based at the feed mill level, and there are a couple of um, recent, more recently an, uh, registered antibiotics which are um, under um, veterinary direction. But in, in Europe, everything is under um, you know, veterinary control, if you like, or, or, or is prescribed. And I think this is, this is an important aspect to the differences between the two countries. Again, we haven't got growth motors, so everything is prescribed because the vet feels that this is the best way forward. Now, coming back to health, health is one of the absolute critical things. Because, let's say, there is a reduction or poor health, um, then you know, there is often the need to rec use an antibiotic. I've got farm um, we've been working with where um, you know, they're antibiotic-free, um, but then they are high health to start with. They're, they, have, they have no mycoplasma um, infections which cause pneumonia. They haven't got swine dysentery. Um, and we have a vaccine, particularly for one disease, which they were treating routinely with antibiotics. Um, but otherwise, you know, they only use antibiotics when they have to in, in certain circumstances. So health is actually a very, very critical issue. Of course. But to, you can't just change that overnight. And I think this is where um, um, I think David has said earlier on that, you know, he's been working on this for 10 years. I think we've been working on it for <laughs> a similar sort of length of time. That, um, um, but what, what we're trying to do is, is, is improve the health of um, our national herds. Um, we're actually looking at this for um, you know, across Europe. There is a European Commission um, body which is now being set up to look see how we can do this. So um, all these things are, are, are um, if you like, sort of taking place, but they don't take place overnight. I mean, that variation that you've talked about within Europe uh, internationally um, sounds like a natural experiment waiting to happen uh, is there any evidence that's come out about the changes in uh, use and how that's mapped onto antibiotic resistance in the human population or in the animal population um, either of you this is something that I've actually looked at in pigs and um, 
I think this is, you, you asked me earlier on, sort of what are we using um, which are critical or, or could be critical antibiotics in, in human medicine. And the ones that we actually use in feed um, are primarily tetracyclines, um, penicillins, aminoglycosides, streptog- um, we don't use streptogamins, that's um, only in the States, macrolides um, and sulfurs. So we're using, tending to use the very, very old products. The ones which um, I think you know, were of cont- controversy, which were the um, um, glycopeptides, um, which are like vancomycin and tycoplanin in man, and the streptogramins like, virg- uh, like quinupristin, dalfopristin, these are no longer used in feed. I think that's, that's one of the, in, in Europe, and I think this is one of the important points to make. The only one that is really now suddenly becoming a, a, an issue is possibly colistin, um, which is a polymyxin, which basically, say the medics haven't been using it or don't like using it because it's, it's highly toxic. But this is becoming a possible last resort drug because these other ones are starting to fail. We're getting um, carbapenemase-resistant bugs coming in, particularly from Asia. Um, and um, this is something which is you know, of concern. But in Europe, this is not something that we are using. And I, I'm sure they won't be using these products in, in the U.S. either. You know, though, this, this is where my perspective is a little different because I think the, the, the thing that's really quite overlooked is the evidence for and the huge risk from cross-selection. And by that, I mean that now we've got reservoirs of multidrug resistance where the resistance genes to multiple different classes of drugs are physically linked on plasmids or other, other pieces of DNA. And so one doesn't have to use a particular drug necessarily to increase the risk of resistance to that drug occurring. One just has to expose bacteria to any of the antibiotics for which resistance is physically linked. And so there's, I know this is getting a little bit into the weeds of microbial resistance, but it's very relevant. And what it means is that at the broadest level, we have to worry about antimicrobial root use overall and, uh, uh, and, and not necessarily parse it out to just use of one class versus another. I, I, I can accept that, but again, it, I think one's got to look at the transference of, 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 if you like, bacteria which might be carrying the, res- the resistance to, you know, from animals, which is primarily going to be via meat to man. And if we have good cooking, good hygiene, things like this, the actual transmission rates are very, very low. And, and just one other wee bit, which um, you know, I, I found fascinating, was that um, if we looked at MRSA in, in, in animals, most of these are tetracycline resistant because we use a lot of tetracyclines. But if you actually look at the human um, isolates, most of these are tetracycline susceptible. They may be fluoroquinolone resistant, but, um, but you know, they're basically tetracycline susceptible. So I, I can accept that you know, there is an overall risk, but um, I think you know, if you do actually start breaking these things down, I think you can actually see that there is a very much a, a human-associated use of antibiotics and resistance development, an animal use of antibiotics and animal um, antimicrobial resistance and actually the overlap is actually very very small yes there are certain areas where there is a crossover but these are are minimal in comparison with 
what's been going on in, in man. If, if 16% or t- between 10 to 20% of the population is receiving antibiotics every year, um, then, you know, why isn't that causing a resistance issue in man? Well, it must be, and it is. And, and we can actually start to differentiate between the two. Well, well, you know, I actually I agree with that last point that human use is important as well, and I don't think anybody disputes that. Um, but I disagree with two of your other points underplaying the concern with the animal use, and here's why. Um, first of all, you're right that one of the major routes of concern is transmission of resistant bacteria in the food supply. The problem is that we eat three times a day. So even if, uh, and I think this is up for debate, even if the transmission rate is infrequent, we're eating so frequently uh, and constantly that it can still translate into quite a significant public health risk. So, for example, the risk of so-called XPEC E. coli infections that are traceable back to the food supply these are extra-intestinal, multi-drug-resistant E. coli infections mm. that can cause things like recurrent urinary tract infections, sepsis, and even death. And this is not a small problem. In the U.S. alone, I think there is something like 8 million urinary tract infections, predominantly in women each year. Uh, a substantial number of those are drug-resistant. The evidence now is that uh, the farm... Is act and practices on the farm are very likely helping to create these multi-drug-resistant strains of E. coli that are being transmitted via the food supply, and chicken in particular, to the human population. So that's one example. Um, with MRSA, too, there now is new evidence that there is amplification on the farm of multi-drug-resistant strains of MRSA that are then getting back to the human population. And uh, to just point to a study published last week in the Public Library of Science, or PLOS, this was a study comparing two different groups of workers, one in uh, uh, industrial livestock operations and the other not working in such operations. And what they found was, in fact, that these multi-drug-resistant MRSA strains were prevalent in the workers in these industrial livestock operations, but not so in the non-industrial operations. So, um, you know, that's another kind of piece of the puzzle, if you will, uh, drawing this link between different kinds of uh, meat production facilities and the risk to the human population coming in contact with animals either directly through working in those facilities or indirectly. Well, I I certainly agree with you. Working with animals um, which have MRSA, um, you you know, there is a very high chance of that spread to farm workers. Um, And um, I think they they reported a sort of a high incidence, 20% of farm workers that that, that were carrying this in that particular study. But um, I think the other side of the coin is also that where we've actually got some epidemiological data from the Danes, in fact, they've shown that roughly, I think it's 0.003% of their um, of population are carrying um, MRSA, but 90, over 90% of those were actually associated with pigs. 
pig work. So again, it, th- this is actually a health and safety issue, if you like, more than anything. But it's uh, but the actual transmission from um, from pig workers to families. Um, again, one study in Germany showed that this was let's say eighty percent down to four percent, and then it didn't transmit on to other other people associated, school children and things like this. And I think this is one of the areas which, you know, we, we sometimes say, oh, yes, you know, look, this is the same bug. Um, again, transmission studies of, of, of I think it was um, E. coli, again, done by the Danes, they actually were giving people 10 to the 8 organisms and things like this to see if they would colonize and then transmit resistance. And only in 50% of, of, of people that were given 10 to the 8 organisms, I mean, that's like putting, you know, a teaspoonful of feces on your meat, um, you know, actually took the took the E. coli. We, we have natural defense mechanisms, acid in the stomach and all these other things to, um, to, to kill bacteria as they come in. Um, so again, um, if we're getting very, very low contaminations of meat, yes, it can happen. We can see this with, with um, um, salmonella. Um, we can see um, this with Campylobacter as well. But basically, um, if we're looking at this from a pigs to the general population, other than pig workers, we're talking about 0.003%, which is roughly you know, 0.3 of a person per 100,000 population. I mean, it, it, it's, it's minute. Well, I, I don't know where the, the rate data comes from, but, but again, this question of the transmission rate being low, it doesn't really matter if, if what we're talking about are meals repeated on a three times daily basis ad infinitum. The problem with food safety is that our theories collide with real life. In theory, if people practice good hygiene and cook their meat well, then we would reduce the risk. That's true. The problem is that that doesn't happen in real life. And so despite our best efforts to educate the public to do these things, in the U.S. we still have several million cases uh, and several hundred deaths at least of foodborne pathogens like salmonella and campylobacter, let alone these newer ones that are now being recognized like uh, extraintestinal E. coli infections and uh, perhaps if the, if the data continues to bear out uh, MRSA as well. So, so my, my approach is to say, you know, not, you know, have we had a disaster yet? Because if we're successful in public health, the idea is to intervene before the disaster occurs, not to wait until it occurs and then say, oh, you know, that's too bad that that happened. So if my premise is that our huge use of antimicrobials is helping to drive the selection preference for these resistant trends to worsen, and if there's a way, which I think the Danes have demonstrated, of reducing that routine use, then the most prudent thing is for us to be investing in those alternative methods of not using antimicrobials when we don't have to. And I think there are many ways to do that. I do agree with that too. You don't get me wrong. (laughs) So some agreement and some disagreement there. Could we have a final bottom line from you, David Wallinger? I think the... You know, there's a global problem now with uh, antibiotic-resistant infections and transmission between farms and human populations. And what we've seen is some great examples of leadership uh, on ways to reduce antibiotic use as a way to address that epidemic problem. 
Um, the the leadership examples, though, are being applied. Uh, um, I guess irregularly uh, across countries, um, and the key is is for us to elevate best practices and, and distribute them more evenly across the world. Mm. And David Birch? Well, coming back to your um, original um, thing, um, does routine antibiotics um, to animal feed pose a, a serious risk to human health? I can only say I, I think it is a very low risk of transmission. I think other products that are used not in feed, i.e. by injection and possibly by in water-soluble, would pose a greater risk for transmission um, of, of resistance. But the actual in feed side of things really um, doesn't pose a huge amount of, of risk to human health. David and David, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's very interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be back with tips on caring for the dying patient in the community. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.